if you don't want to be challenged by the desire to eat all of the ice cream and all of the potato chips or whatever it is, you just generally, like your home, your work environment, you set it up for success. This episode is brought to you by Ample Meal, honored by my friend Connor Young. Ample is a new entrant to the supplement market, but it's not a supplement like a protein shake, which is you know limited in my experience, but it's a complete meal in a bottle, and it's healthy. So just add water, shake it up, add a little bit more water, and then drink it. So if you're on the go, if you're a busy professional, if you're a warrior in the field, this is your new MRE. They come in 400 and 600 calorie versions. They have a ketogenic version and also all sorts of things coming online. Ample meal, terrific stuff, and it really tastes good as well. Um, no GMO, uh, no gluten, all very healthy um, ingredients. This is a breakthrough, I think, for uh, food supplementation, and um, I love it. I, I, it's a go-to for me. I, I drink one a day. All right, so go to amplemeal.com. Connor has generously offered you two bonus meals. These are like 6 or $7 um, value each for any order over $50. So go to amp- amplemeal.com. Unbeatable is your code. Check it out. I love this stuff. It is fantastic, and it's one of a kind. Hoo-yah. Hey, folks. Mark Devine here with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. As you know, I do not take it for granted. You have a lot of things out there vying for your attention, and I really appreciate it. So we're here this week. We're going to talk to my friend Rob Wolf about his view on nutrition, and uh, as he's expressing through his new book, which comes out March 21st, called Wired to Eat. So we're, I'm really excited to um, to dig into that, and I got a preview of that at our annual Unbuild Mind Retreat in December. Uh, but before I introduce Rob, let me remind you, if you haven't heard, that we're launching a foundation called the Courage Foundation, and the purpose or the mission of the Courage Foundation is to bring uh, courage and resiliency to troubled populations. And the three initial populations that we're working with are the prison population and their children. So not just the prisoners, but the children of prisoners and um, PTSD vets who are, you know, really suffering, you know, potentially suicidal, as well as women who have been, um, you know, abused and, and have, you know, challenged kind of recuperating from that. We have partners that we're working with in these three areas to bring Unbeatable Mind Training Principles books. We've donated several thousand books to the um, prisons already. And so we're just getting it up and running. We're, um, we're in the middle or toward the end of a auction uh, to raise some money. And so check out CourageFoundation.net and uh, see if it's of interest to you um, to maybe help us make an impact. Cool. All right. Um, lots of other cool stuff going on, but we'll save that for another time. Rob and I have known each other for, for several years. Rob, um, one of the, in my opinion, one of the preeminent experts on fueling and nutrition with a really integrative approach, which I think is cool and near and dear to our kind of way we look at life here at Unbeal Mind is, you know, it's hard to, you know, the, the old way of just slicing and dicing and, and putting, you know, knowledge into uh, a fence or, or behind a fence and saying it doesn't impact other areas is, is just flat out wrong and doesn't work. And so people are finally waking up to that. And nutrition is no different, right? So nutrition is an integrative, you know, there's an integrative approach to looking at nutrition. And Rob, I think, is at the forefront of doing that. So Rob is a former best-selling author of The Paleo Solution. He worked with the actual um, guy named Leon Cordain, who was kind of the founder or the you know, generator of the whole paleo movement. Uh, Rob has consulted for the SEALs and continues to work for them in their resiliency program. He also uh, eats his own dog food, so to speak, in, in that he's a, a functional fitness expert, a former powerlifting champ, and really had to learn the nutrition with his own body as your uh, as his own experimentation laboratory. Am I right, Rob? You, you needed to figure shit out for yourself, right? Well, you, you know, the uh, the first life preserver that I threw to myself with this kind of ancestral eating approach was to myself. Like, right. I was in pretty dire straits. So, yeah, that's absolutely accurate. So, what was that like? I mean, you were just – it just wasn't working for you, the sad American diet. I mean, it's obviously not working for many people, but what, what was it like for you? Tell us that story. Yeah, you know, it, it, so both – of my parents were pretty unhealthy growing up. Like I remember as far back as, as memory serves, 
Uh, both my parents were pretty sick. My, uh, both of them smoked. My mom had her gallbladder removed in her early 30s. And, and uh, you know, there were all these problems that now looking back, I'm like, oh, I know totally what was, right. you know, going on there. But early on, I had this sense that, man, if I don't smoke and maybe if I exercise and I eat differently than my family, maybe I'll do pretty good. And so I played around with a variety of things like the, the high protein, high carb bodybuilder type diet for when I was powerlifting. And uh, I'm, I'm 45, and so uh, I was born at a time where we transitioned from the four group food groups to the food pyramid. Right. And so um, the food pyramid was definitely much more carb-heavy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I entered college, and of course in college you want to be the, you know, kind of avant-garde, do, do what isn't the normal thing. And so kind of vegetarian and vegan eating was the – you know, the avant-garde thing to do. And so I started playing with that. And for me, my physiology, my digestion, it just really didn't work. I w- and I went everywhere. I went to like the Georgia Shawa Macrobiotic Institute and, you know, figured out how to soak and sprout these grains and legumes. And <laughs> what I developed was a case of ulcerative colitis. And it was so bad. So I walk around about 175 pounds. I'm five foot nine. I'm reasonably lean, reasonably muscular, particularly for a 45 year old guy these days. <laughs> but I was down to 130 pounds. That's like, by with, the way, that sounded like your Match.com description. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> reasonably, reasonably lean, lean reasonably fit, particularly for an old guy. You know, yeah, totally, totally. And uh, but you know, I was so sick, so I was still eating a lot of food. But because of the ulcerative colitis, and if folks aren't familiar with it it's just this inflammation in your gut sounds horrible it it, it is absolutely terrible and and conventional methods for dealing with it are are really lackluster um usually immunosuppressant drugs which have a whole host of knock-on problems and uh, so i was not absorbing any nutrients my hair was falling out my nails were splitting i had you know all kinds of problems going on and what my doctors wanted to do for me at the age of about 26, 27 was cut about two to three feet out of my my guts. And somehow that was going to help me. You know, you just take <laughs> the most just re- remove the gut and then you won't have the problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, the, it, and I asked there, them, I'm there like, are some well, what's, side effects of that? I imagine. <laughs> well, yeah, there's huge side effects. And yeah. I asked them, well, what's to stop this process from just going elsewhere once we cut that part out? And they're like, oh, nothing. It probably will. And I was God like, okay, great, you know. And it was right or you know, I was feeling pretty despondent because, you, you know, 26, you in in your 26, 27, oh, 26, you know, not not so old. And so it, it was right around this time that my mother became really sick. She went into the hospital. She had some sort of a inflammatory flare and what what was discovered in that whole process was that she had lupus which is an autoimmune disease rheumatoid arthritis and she also had a condition called celiac disease which is an autoimmune response to wheat or or specifically the protein gluten and her rheumatologist you, you know basically said to her hey i think you're really reactive to most grains most legumes and also dairy Mm-hmm. And I remember her telling me this and I was like, hmm. so you can't eat grains, legumes and dairy. And she was basically, yeah. And, and what uh, else is there? <laughs> I was like, what the hell do you eat? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I, I was literally noodling on that. And it was this kind of like gestalty, like, you know, flow of consciousness deal. And I was like, grains, legumes and dairy. When did, what's the deal with that? I'm like, that's agriculture. Okay. Mm-hmm. When did agriculture occur? The Neolithic. Okay. What was before the Neolithic? Oh, the Paleolithic, caveman's, hunter gatherers. And I mean, it was literally kind of like a 30 second kind of like flow of consciousness deal. And even back in uh, 1998, which is when all this stuff went down, I had heard about a Paleolithic diet or, you know, kind mm-hmm. of an ancestral diet. So I went into my house and I turned on the computer and waited for the dial up to do its thing. (laughs) And then there was a newfangled search engine called Google, which seemed kind of cool. And into Google, I put the term Paleolithic diet. And that's where I found Lauren Cordain's work and this guy, Arthur Devaney. Mm. And what they were describing was that these Neolithic foods, oftentimes in folks, produce some really profound gastrointestinal problems and inflammation and, you know, all these other issues. They also painted a picture that we wouldn't really have modern civilization without these things. And mm-hmm. one of Lauren's first papers was cereal grains, mankind's double-edged sword, you mm-hmm. know? And so there's been so much good, but also potentially some 
challenges with this stuff. But once I got a little bit educated on this, I, I shifted my nutrition around towards this kind of paleolithic way of eating. And I, 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 I can't describe it any other way other than it was life-saving. I mean, that, that picture of the life preserver being thrown to me and I'm, I'm going under for the fourth time. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm going under a goodbye cruel world kind of thing. And this thing really was a life preserver mm-hmm. for me. And I, I had the good fortune not too long after this to find this wacky workout online called CrossFit. Mm, And I started kind of hanging out with those guys and uh, Dave Warner, who's a a former team guy. um, He and I started uh, working out together in his garage. And before we knew it, we had about 20 people working out with us. And uh, we shot the Glassman's an email saying, Hey, we want to open a gym. We need to call it CrossFit because you guys have really, you know, given us this operating system that we're, incredibly inspired by you know what do you think and they were like yes go be achieved do this and so that became the first crossfit affiliate up in seattle and then uh i had an opportunity to move back down to chico california and the difference between chico and seattle is that in chico there's this fiery orb in the sky called the sun (laughs) and it provides warmth and light and joy and in seattle it doesn't exist and so i i'd need a hasty retreat out of seattle and went down to Chico and set up what was then the fourth CrossFit affiliate gym. And in these, you know, in that environment, I had a chance to take this theory about both the strength and conditioning, but also the nutrition and lifestyle features like sleep and photo period. And I got to learn a lot about the power of community. You know, this uh, community connection is as important as vitamins and minerals. You know, we, we evolved as a small group hunter gatherers. And I think that this is some of the experience that so many people in the, the military police fire, you know, they get these really profoundly, uh, deep and trustful relationships that are very difficult to replicate elsewhere, you know, and it's really a, uh, an incredible grounding point, but I was able to kind of experiment and learn about all this stuff over the last, I guess, almost 15 years. So you just covered a 15 year period in about a minute and a half. So <laughs> let me go back a little bit. So you started testing the paleo on yourself and it worked. A, what, what did you do different? Like explain to me and others what you did different in terms of how you ate and then B, what was the effect and how long did it take and was it sustainable? And then uh, the other thing I want to know is at what point did you actually go work with Leon Cordain? Cause I didn't hear that part in your little. Oh yeah. 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 So, there. Yeah. So the things that I changed, so I was eating this kind of macrobiotic, uh, high carb, low fat vegan diet. So, I mean, it was whole unprocessed foods, but it was a lot of rice. It was a lot of beans. It was tofu. It was tempeh. And and, classic uh, vegan or vegetarian, not vegan, but probably vegetarian diet, right? It was vegan. Yeah. I mean, it was, was I wasn't doing any dairy products, no animal products, but I mean, I was on point with it. Like I wasn't a knucklehead. I I was Mm -hmm. doing it to the best of my ability in, in that circumstance. So what I changed, you know, I shifted to a whole, still whole, largely whole unprocessed approach to eating, but it was kind of fruit and vegetable centric, lots of seeds. And I always had a hunk of animal based protein in the mix, mm-hmm. you know, some beets, some fish, uh, eggs, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it shifted from a very high carb, very low fat approach to a moderate to high protein, moderate fat, mm-hmm. moderate to low carb diet. Mm-hmm. And the, the results for me were immediate. Like the, the first meal that I had, this is kind of funny, but I, uh, you know, when I decided to do this, I went to whole foods and I got like a rack of ribs and I slow roasted the ribs and made my own kind of, kind of sauce on it. And I made kind of a salad and had, uh, had some, some fruit with it. And I ate that. And at this time I had some really disturbed sleep. And it's not surprising because I was inflamed. I had high cortisol. You know, I wasn't absorbing nutrients. I probably didn't have most of the cofactors to even make melatonin in a really effective fashion to help me sleep. But I had that meal. And that night I slept better than I had in about two years. And I got up the next day and I was like, wow, I feel pretty good. And I just kept motoring on this. And I pause there for a second. Oh, yeah. Um, because you said something which I think is important that just came out. Um, I, I just did a podcast with a fellow named Sean Stevenson. He's a sleep guy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Sean, anyways, pretty pretty intelligent guy. And um, what he was telling me is that mel- you actually produce more melatonin in your stomach than you do in your pineal yes. you know, gland, yeah. 
which blew me away. So if you're, if, and I'm assuming when you have this, you know, the, this gut syndrome that you had, like, you know, inflammation and whatnot, that your pro and prebiotics are all pretty much trash, right? Cause they're getting right. killed in the fire right. down there. So it would make sense, right? That your sleep Absolutely. is going to be horrific because you're not producing melatonin period. Right. Not in the gut, not in the brain. Yeah. And it, it's uh yeah. And that's a, a really great point. They call the gut the second brain. It doesn't have quite as many neurons as our primary brain, but it, it's, well, it has some, a lot. Some people it does. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're talking about here. <laughs> but you know, I, I felt better immediately. My sleep improved. I put muscle mass back on for the first time in like four years. I got back up to like 170, 175 pounds. I could do capoeira. I could lift some weights. I, mm -hmm. I felt really good. And what, what was interesting, I was really debating between going to medical school or doing a research track around this stuff. And I kind of leaned more towards the research track. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to Lauren Cordain, who was out at Colorado State in, mm -hmm. in Fort Collins. And I pinged him and I'm like, hey, I want to be your grad student. He was basically like, yeah, I don't really want a grad student. There's not really any funding for it. No and I was way. like, I, and it was basically like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm partway in the drive from Seattle to Fort Collins. I'm in Idaho. And so I'll be there in two days. So uh, <laughs> get, get ready. And I literally like showed up at, at the guy's doorstep. And when I walked into his office, Lauren's really a brilliant guy. And every square inch of his floor was covered in research papers. He had laid them out in a sequential fashion. And because, you're looking at him and saying, you don't need a research assistant. Yeah, right, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. That's but, you awesome. know, he had acres of file cabinets because this was early, like early PDF period. You know, right. this is like 2000, 2001. Interesting. You know, you had to print all this stuff out. And so he had dozens of file cabinets stuffed full of research. And this guy had this just encyclopedic recall of these different studies, but he was working on his current paper and he had, I don't know, a hundred, 200 papers laid out in the floor. There was barely enough space to walk between these, these research papers. And he, we started talking about what he was looking at. And so Lauren's background was in exercise physiology. And then he got into this paleo concept. And he's a super smart guy. But my background was in biochemistry and immunology. Mm -hmm. And so I started talking to him about this stuff. I'm like, hey, have you considered this? You considered that? And so pretty quickly he was like, okay, this kid's not a complete knucklehead. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up doing a one-year research fellowship with him and contributed to a paper that uh, was looking at elevated insulin levels and these things called skin tags, these mm -hmm. little you know, nodules of skin that grow in our armpits and mm -hmm. basically – making the point that people who develop these skin tags frequently have what we would call an atherogenic blood profile and so made the case that in a screening process for type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, a physical screen should include, you know, just basically a visual inspection of do people have these skin tags because that could, if you have those, it's about a 98% likelihood that you had an atherogenic blood profile occurring. So that was the contribution that i, I made to that armpit right now <laughs> <laughs> <I don't see laughs> yeah and you know it's funny i had those in my youth and then when i switched my eating they just went away no they kidding. just like absorbed and and went away so that was a really fascinating thing i remember all of my family members and we're like scott irish norwegian mm -hmm. kind of lineage like doughy northern U europeans <laughs> everybody had skin tags and Everybody developed type two diabetes, just like to a personal family. So, so from their their teens, virtually everybody in my family had these early phenotypic, you know, these right. things that you could see just eyeballing them. Examples of some really bad blood lipid stuff going on, some bad hormonal stuff occurring, and and we had this, you know, easy to see diagnostic tool with these skin tags. That's wild. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast episode is brought to you by Organifi. Now, we all know that green juice is good for us, but juicing is a pain. It costs a fortune and it's super time-consuming. At least that's my story. Uh, I don't juice. So that's why I opt for Organifi green juice as an alternative because it's super easy, super tasty. It's an organic superfood green juice powder. Just add it to your water and stir it up. It dissolves almost immediately. Drink it, and it will help sustain your energy throughout the day. It'll reduce stress over time, 
And best part is it really tastes good. So check it out. To get your micronutrients from a superfood green juice, use Organifi. I think stuff is great. Go to Organifi.com and these guys are super generous. I know the founder and they have offered a 20% discount to you on your order. So go to Organifi.com, use the code UNBEATABLE at checkout and get 20% off your order. And uh, that link is also listed below in the show notes to this episode. Organifi.com. Hoo-yah. So you, you obviously began to research. You started to eat more of a paleo or not more of, but a paleolithic diet. You got a lot healthier. And then you went into the business of longevity, health and longevity through CrossFit and combining your nutrition counseling and your main um, thing back then was really kind of one-on-one, working one-on-one with clients, right, to, to help them move toward a healthier lifestyle? By and large, yes. Yeah. Like we pretty early in our evolution as a, a CrossFit-oriented gym, you know, you had that group class model. But I, I recognized that we needed kind of a way of introducing people to the program that was maybe both more gentle and more targeted. And right. so I did a lot of one-on-one work with folks. And we were open maybe two years, and then we were picked as one of men's health top 30 gyms in America. Like, we had had right. some really, really good success, you know. And and uh, so some words started getting out, and folks started to to be interested in what we were doing. So we started doing a little bit of blogging, mm-hmm. and then I started doing a little bit of uh, seminar work. And I, I compiled just lots and lots and lots of questions uh, when I did seminars, uh, it would be an eight-hour deal where I was talking about all these these different topics. My wife would travel with me, and she would just keep notes on what the mm-hmm. questions were that we received. And then we started kind of cataloging these things and sticking them in different buckets. And then I would update the talk to address these questions. And it was kind of cool because we would we would get to a point where I knew based off the material I had just presented what the next question was going to be. And I would say, okay, and now you're going to ask about this, you know, and it was really kind of cool. But the idea for that first book, the paleo solution was really the, 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 the initial thought with it was just that I would produce a guide that people could read ahead of time so that they could get a, a visual exposure to all this material. Mm-hmm. Then they would go hear it from me and then they, you know, would, they would get multiple exposures to it. And as I was talking to a friend of mine, Erich Kraus, who is the, the owner of uh, Victory Belt Publishing, they had a pretty successful gig going on where they were publishing MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructional books. And they were really beautiful. They were like, coffee table books with color pictures and like really nice step-by-step sequences of how to do Thai boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and everything. But he said to me, Hey, I think you could do a book with, with this. And, and, uh, we put it together and, and, you know, what uh, had the, the good fortune, good luck to make a New York times bestseller out of it. But I, I think to the degree that that book was successful was a hundred percent an outgrowth of the fact that I had talked to thousands of people. I had sure. all these conversations. So then, it, you know, I was able to address a lot of the common concerns and, mm-hmm. and, uh, confusions and whatnot. And so I've really got to credit the people who were willing to give me a shot that were willing right. to, to both give me a shot and also to ask a ton of questions to the degree that I was able to be successful in that genre, it was a, you know, a complete outgrowth of the relationships I made and being able to talk to these people. No, I agree. Yeah, I, what I loved about that book is that not only were, did you have the, the depth to appreciate and articulate the science behind it, but you were also a coach and you, know, you, you delivered you know, the, the training and the, the consultation to thousands of clients. It's not unlike like, one of the reasons that I can pull off you know, writing about mental toughness is that I, I'm not approaching it from an academic point of view. I want to right. understand that point, but it's right. this is like real practical what's worked in the trenches with SEAL candidates and with CEOs and elite athletes and whatnot. So you took a, right. a similar approach with nutrition and you learned through trial and error. And what, what yeah, the, the other yeah. thing is you also realized that, and this is kind of, we can kind of pivot a little bit here because I'm really fascinated with this notion of personal nutrition. But through that process, I imagine you realize that, that one plan doesn't fit all, right? And, and yeah. you really need to, everyone's got a different, you know, makeup and, and they need to understand what that is and, and do their own trial and error, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, I just spent, you know, what, 30 minutes like tooting my horn and, and, 
you know, describing my, Describe you know, them. what a brilliant person I was. Here was the idiocy that also happened in the background of that. There's this thing called the Dunning Kruger effect, which is basically when somebody is newly exposed to a topic, they assume that they have super deep understanding of that topic. <laughs> And it, they call it Mount Stupid, like you were at the precipice of Mount Stupid. And as you become actually more competent in it, your confidence in your understanding decreases yeah. until like 20 years out. You don't you feel like you know are, anything. Yeah, you, yeah, you, you feel like you know. that right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. so, you know, this – so the way that I had success was a quite low-carb version of this paleo diet approach. I would go in and out of ketosis and, man, for my physiology, it was spot on, just mm -hmm. perfect. And so – and then I, you know, made similar recommendations to a ton of the folks that we worked with. And when people were overweight and dyslipidemic and, and whatnot, they, they did great on this. But then as we started working with some leaner folks and some people that mm -hmm. really wanted to push the envelope of their CrossFit performance, I started seeing thyroid issues mm -hmm. and adrenal issues and retrograde performance. Yeah, and so being that. The, you know, being the brilliant person that I was, I said, well, you just need to do more of mm -hmm. this thing that's failing. And, uh, you know, it took me a while and broke a few people, including myself. And then I had some very smart folks that, that functioned as mentors, even uh, for myself, Ste uh, Stefan Guinet, mm -hmm. Chris Kresser, Matt Lalonde. These guys said, you know, this low carb diet stuff is great. But when you have these really highly glycolytically demanding activities like CrossFit or like, uh, you know, buds or something like that. You're probably not going to be able to fuel it with a ketogenic diet. It might be able to fuel it on a more moderate carbohydrate diet. And we might goose a little bit of the fat fueling and we have some good anti-inflammatory effects and whatnot. But a ketogenic diet specifically may not be the most right. appropriate thing. Can, and can so, we pause there for yeah. a second? Because let's, I want to get into this notion of ketosis because I, I think we should explain what that is. And I have a question. Does the, the let's say, a traditional paleo diet like you propose in the paleo solution – does that create ketosis? First, let's explain what ketosis is, and then let's look at whether paleo can bring on ketosis or whether that's a specific fueling plan that brings great, on ketosis. Great, great question. Yeah. Uh, so the state of ketosis, it normally, and, and even normally, I kind of put in quotations here because it, it's really kind of a subjective deal, but let, let's think about what could fuel our brain, which is kind of the most important thing to, to keep alive. And generally, if we're well fed and consistently fed, the brain runs pretty well off of glucose. Mm. And that's kind of the primary fuel source. But if we imagined a scenario where you might not have access to food for hours or days, uh, the liver, which is the source of glucose for the body and also the brain in between meals, it only has a couple of hundred calories of of glucose stored there which you know maybe by 12 or 18 hours of calories and if we run out of glucose in the liver in between meals and if we think about kind of a hunter gatherer past or even like a war fighting scenario like it wouldn't be that hard to be in a scenario where you're like oh i can't go grab a, a, a snack you know <laughs> like i've got stuff to do here and so you've got to have something to fuel the brain because if the brain runs out of a, a fuel substrate you either get super wonky cognitively, which isn't good for, you know, really any circumstance, or you're going to die. And so the, the workaround with this is that when carbohydrate or calories in general are very low, we have tons, even in lean people, we have lots and lots of stored body fat. But this body fat, although a great fuel source in general, it's not easily brought into the brain. The brain doesn't really use fat as a fuel source. But what you can do, you can move that fat to the liver and then the liver converts that fat into these things called ketone bodies. And the ketone bodies are water-soluble like glucose. They can go through the blood-brain barrier. And interestingly, the brain seems to run preferentially on glucose. Like it runs really, really well. The heart runs really well – or excuse me, on ketones. ketones. Right, yeah. And uh, the heart, interestingly, is more efficient with ketones. Each beat is actually – pumping more blood per calorie burned than if it's running on glucose. Right. So it, you think it, back to that, back to our paleolithic ancestors, yeah. it's likely that they were in ketosis large chunks of time. It, Certainly it, it, during it was, the winter, you know, the colder months when they were, didn't have the fruit and, and the high, you know, high carb stuff. 
Right. And it, at a minimum that we were probably sliding in and out of ketosis in some sort of a stepwise fashion. And this is an, an interesting thing for today is that the folks who you could argue have a really healthy metabolism, if they get a decent sized carbohydrate meal, it doesn't wreck them. Mm-hmm. You know, they they don't get cognitive impairment. They don't get a hypoglycemic event. They don't feel wrecked afterwards. But then that same person if you really force them through a hard physical activity, if you uh, intermittent fast them for hours or maybe a day, they shift into ketosis rather easily. Mm-hmm. And so they're flexible with their fuels. They can they can run pretty well on some carbs or if they need to shift gears and, and be fat, fat fueled, they can do that. And I think that that is kind of the default human mode. And there's mm-hmm. a spectrum on that. Some people genetically are wired. They can run better on more carbs. Some people I think like myself uh, generally work a little bit better on lower carb, but it's a pretty good sign of a healthy metabolism that you could shift back and forth between these different fuels and do it in a, a reasonably seamless fashion. What, what we unfortunately see in most folks today is that transition into ketosis, whether from fasting or if they just eat a low carbohydrate, higher fat diet, folks feel pretty rough. The, the, mm-hmm. the, Right. first couple of days. And, well, and it's could that, part of that. Could that, I'm sorry, you're probably just about to say this, but I was going to say, could that be the, like the, the addictive quality of the carbs and coming off of, you know, eating absolutely. the bad carbs? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, 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 yes. And I think that what, what's happened is from maybe even in utero, we've been getting exposed to amounts and varieties of carbs that really might be inappropriate for us. Mm. You know, we, And we also have some other things going on, like we don't sleep the way that we're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Our gut microbiome gets changed all throughout our our lives. Antibiotics are amazing tools. Like so many millions of people used to die before that pre-Fleming era of of penicillin. But we also intimately understand that alterations in the gut microbiome can make us insulin resistant, Mm -hmm. can be pro-inflammatory. And so it's kind of a Faustian bargain, you know, it's like we save your life from this infectious disease, but then you may have chronic degenerative disease as a, as a consequence of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not a hundred percent a beneficial thing having antibiotics. There's, there's right. kickback on it and whatnot. So yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like refined carbohydrates seem to be neurologically addictive. It seems to stimulate mm-hmm. the neuroregulation of appetite in a way where we can eat more than what we would do if we were eating like pork loin, broccoli and cantaloupe, you know, I mean, at some point you eat that meal and you're like, okay, that was good, but I'm done. But you know, if you could go hit a a pretty solid buffet, like I live in Reno, Nevada, you go hit a buffet here and it's like, oh, I'm going to have some of this, some of this. And then you, you feel full, but then you walk by the dessert chain and you're like, oh man, I can eat more, you know? And yeah. This kind of brings us to really one of the core principles in in your book Wired to Eat, which is coming out, and th- and three terms that um, I did not, I had no idea what they were until I read this book, and I, I'm probably still not really 100 percent clear on some of them, but neuroregulation and hyperpalatability and hypochondria. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so what you're referring to is that our our food is hy- hyperpalatability is it's tasty, right? So, so that, that really buffet, tasty. Like everything's really cocaine tasty. tasty. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so we get addicted to it in a sense, yeah. you know, and, and it's plentiful. It's all over the right. place. And that, that's different in our modern agricultural world. It's even different than it was, you know, 100, 200 years ago. But it's like everything's available all the time. And so what you're suggesting is that it's really kind of not our fault because you're going to eat that shit. You can't help yourself. You would be nuts not to eat it, you know, from from this kind of evolutionary biology perspective where you really didn't know where your next meal was. And, you know, so like if you look at a bear or a lion or even a a horse, whatever animal you want to think of that lives in nature, it's not a pet of humans. Those critters don't eat a meal and then consult their MyFitnessPal and say, Oh, wow. Okay. So I just ate 600 calories. I need to do 20 minutes of jumping jacks to burn it off. Like free living organisms eat as much as they can get a hold of and then they rest. And that's really good engineering living out in the natural world. But for humans and our pets, because of technology and because of our culture, we can now sit in our underwear, work from home, have food delivered to our door, pop it in the microwave 
And we don't have to do a thing. And for, again, from this kind of evolutionary biology perspective, that's like winning the lottery. You are not going to starve <laughs> to death in that. But the unfortunate thing is you probably are going to die early from type 2 diabetes or chronic degenerative diseases doing that. But, you know, the, the We're literally eating in, ourselves to death, literally eating ourselves to death, whereas, you know, it was scarcity that was the real danger in our not so distant past. And so, you know, and it's interesting within this unbeatable mind community, which is, you know, a, about mental toughness and, and persevering. But at the same time, um, you are Dealing with a story here, like if you think that the impulse to eat all of the food is misplaced, if you think that that's a weakness, I could make the argument that the desire, if you are, if your head is held underwater and you are starting to pass out and you're going to go unconscious and then die. That's also and if that <laughs> is that a weakness or is the desire to pop your head out of the water and grasp a breath, a breath of air to to survive, to live. Is that well-placed or misplaced? I would say that's very well-placed. And so these two things are not different. People may think that they are, but both of them are basic biological survival drives. So it's not not about willpower. This is hardwired in us to eat when food's available and eat the tastiest stuff. And, and, you know, if you you want to rely on willpower with very few examples, you're going to fail. There are a few people – that for whatever reason, maybe it's genetic or maybe it's upbringing or what have you, you can just stick a bunch of you know potato chips around the person or whatever, and they're not going to eat them. I am not that person. I'm 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 not that motivated by sweets. But I tell you what, if there's a bag of uh, you know sea salt and vinegar potato chips, mm. doesn't matter if it's a five ounce bag or a five pound bag. I'm going to eat the whole bag, you know, <laughs> and and it is completely reasonable to do that. And so, you know. So then people may say, so what do we make of this? And, you know, the the first spot that I would like people to arrive at this is just that if we understand how we're wired to eat, then we're not going to vilify ourselves. We're not going to vilify others for this tendency. Yeah, for there's this situ- so much guilt and shame in right. nutrition and dieting and all that, isn't there? It's like, yeah. Well, and, get that all out of it, right? Yeah. And, and you know. Now, do we want to just accept this situation? I would argue no. Like that, that isn't a very appealing, you know, process. But I would say that if we can at least be at a spot where we understand this story, where we're not beating ourselves up, if we don't feel guilt, if we understand, okay, this is normal. Like my desire to eat all this stuff that I've got in the pantry is normal. What do I do? Well, we clean out the pantry. We, you know, if you don't want to be in a situation where you need to test your self-defense skills, you don't go to bad parts of town with your wallet flipping around in your hand in the middle of the night. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it, and so if, if you don't, if you don't want to be challenged by the desire to eat all of the ice cream and all of the, you know, the, the potato chips or whatever it is, you just generally like your home, your work environment, you set it up for success. You generally have good options, things that you enjoy, but again, that aren't cocaine like in their nature. And then, you know, when you want to kick your heels up, let's go out to eat and do that. Let's just not have that stuff in the home. And, and, uh, and also if we do kick our heels up, understand that that's part of the benefit of living in this modern world. We have all these options. We have all this variety. Let's, let's have some fun and, and benefit from that. But also let's recognize that those things, you know, like in the, in the Andes mountains, people have chewed cocoa leaves for thousands of years and it's kind of mildly addictive. People enjoy it. It's a stimulant, but there aren't people like selling their bodies on the streets to get this stuff. Whereas if you refine the cocaine and make it super, powerful, then you've got a, a, a remarkably addictive substance that can have all kinds of terrible knock-on effects. And it sounds kind of crazy, but the foods that we can find in any snack aisle of any supermarket have been engineered to hit the same dopamine receptors sure. as cocaine and nicotine and caffeine. Yeah. They're highly addictive. They're extremely habit-forming. And some very, very smart people have been studying this process for a long time. And they, what's the Lay's potato chip tagline? Bet you can't eat just one. (laughs) Dude, I'll take that bet all day long. Because we made it so you can't eat just one. Yeah, bet you, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, interesting. I only publicly support companies and products that I personally use and have found valuable. So I wanted to tell you about Qualia. 
Now, I'm not a supplement geek. I don't find them useful if I'm fueling properly. But when it comes to my cognitive strength and brain health, I am excited about the emerging industry of nootropic supplements. I've been testing Qualia, designed by my friends at the Neurohacker Collective, for several months now. And it's on the bleeding edge of nootropic research and has become the one supplement that I won't go without on a daily basis. Qualia stimulates what's called broad-spectrum cognitive enhancement, which involves optimizing multiple cognitive variables simultaneously rather than focusing on a single variable. For example, it brings me greater ability to focus and makes me feel more connected while not diminishing my overall awareness of the environment. I experience a systematic enhancement of my brain's ability to take in and process information without any stimulating effect, which would make me feel agitated like caffeine, or depleted after the effect wears off. Now, for a busy entrepreneur and athlete like me, it's a no-brainer to invest in my brain health with Qualia. You can get on the Qualia bandwagon with me by visiting neurohacker.com, that's N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, and use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R, that's UNBEATABLEMIND15R, to get 15% off the life of your order. Trust me on this one, you won't be disappointed with Qualia. So we're wired to eat it, you know, we're wired to eat this way. Uh, what you're suggesting is that, you know, from a structural standpoint, we can help ourselves by, you know, eliminating, don't buy the crap, keep it out of the spaces. So that makes sense. And then, you know, there's obviously a community aspect. I know that's a big thing. So if your community is healthy and your community is eating a certain way and after the CrossFit gym, you go to Lotus instead of to McDonald's, that's a helpful thing. So community, that's part peer pressure, but also modeling and mentorship and coaching. Mm -hmm. And then I have to think also, you know, maybe it's not willpower, but discipline. So let me take myself, for example, like I don't, because I've been kind of disciplined myself to eat paleo and I slide into ketosis frequently on an intermittent fast, you know, from 7 p.m. to 10 a.m., that um, I don't have any cravings for food. And so that keeps me pretty much on track. And so I tend to eat probably 30% less than a lot of my peers because I don't, I don't have the desire for it. And so I think you can, at least my premise, and you can push back on this, is that you can kind of retrain your body and, and prob- probably over time, epigenetically, you know, really retrain or rewire your, your code, but for at, at, a, at least a, a cognitive and an and a emotional and a physical sense of needing the food, you can kind of retrain yourself, but it takes discipline. It, it does. It, yeah. And, you know, with that discipline caveat, though, I would put in the, the, the little nuance there that for me, the discipline piece is just about being really smart about setting yourself up for success. Yeah, like, sure. yeah. you, you know, yeah. it, it's, uh, yeah, I, had it, a, it's, I had a SEAL yeah. team around me to help me. <laughs> right. Not everyone right. has a SEAL team. Right. right. Wouldn't yeah. that be nice? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm sure if listeners it, the same. You, nice? you know, so. So like uh, this is and it sounds kind of crazy, but it's like, you know, you go home, you clean out the pantry, all the all the dodgy items have got to they just need to go or and or. So, you know, like for me, uh, I like dark chocolate, but I'll have a square. And then like two weeks later, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's some dark chocolate in the cabinet and I'll have a square. My wife, I have to hide the dark chocolate from like she will eat all of it. Whereas if there's a bag of potato chips in the house. I will push her down and rip the bag open and eat it, you know, and, and, uh, and whereas for her, she's like, she'll have one or two of them and she doesn't really care. And, and so, you know, and not everybody's extreme one way or the other with that, but there are, there probably is some trigger item for most people. And you just need to ask yourself, like, am I going to be able to, to resist this in my moment of stress and my moment of indecision? And if you waffle the least bit about it, then you don't have it around. You know, you know, it's like at a minimum, if you're like, man, I really want some chocolate. Okay. You're going to go get in the car. You're going to drive to the store. You're going to buy the chocolate. You're going to eat all of the chocolate at the store or in the car. You don't bring it home. And then, you know, and for me, that is the discipline. Like yeah, it, it's, yeah. um, and at some point you're, you're totally right. You create a habit and we rewire our appetite such that a good tomato tastes really, really good. You know, whereas when you're used to eating these highly refined engineered foods, literally people will eat something like a tomato or a cucumber and they're like, 
yeah, I can't taste anything. This is like cardboard, you know? Yeah. And, and so you have to kind of, it, again, this is where like the similarities between drug addiction and the, the kind of mm-hmm. food addictive flavor palate experience is really interesting. And it, it's kind of a controversial topic within the medical circles. Some people will really kind of poo poo this stuff. But I think when you look empirically at this, it, it's kind of like, yeah, OK, you know, some of these foods are just way more. People are not going to binge eat on broccoli and pork loin, mm-hmm. you know, but people can and will binge eat on uh, cheesecake and potato chips and nachos. And particularly if you've got an opportunity where you can go from one food to another food mm-hmm. to another food. Like your buffet. Yeah. 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 You know, I think the whole, you know, when we, when we talk about mental development, one of the tools we use obviously is, is mindfulness and, you know, the whole notion, I remember Thitna Chan talking about slowing down and just, you know, like taking 45 chews to chew your potato chip. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And that, there's a lot to be said there. I know it, it sounds kind of ludicrous, but if you s- really slow down and just like savor, if you love chocolate, savor that one piece of chocolate and it takes you 20 minutes to eat that sucker, then you've kind of like satiated the urges mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with one piece of chocolate as opposed to three chocolate bars. The bar, right. Yeah, but that, right. that takes, you know, that's a habit. You have to really, really be aware. Right. And so what's cool about that is you could kill two birds with one stone. You know, you could develop mindfulness and awareness and, you know, change your eating habits. Exactly. Boom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, I, I'm glad three, two, you – one, you, go. <laughs> right. You know, th- that's one of the interesting things also about some of these uh, – more Eastern meditative practices, although there's some interesting stuff to be learned out of the the kind of Western Socratic method. But part of what like Zen Buddhism and just kind of Zen practice and meditation in general, you're trying to be aware of like the internal dialogue, what's going on there. And it's really interesting because part of the reason why we need to do that is we have this really ancient area of the brain that is devoted to survival. And it's, it's short fight or circuits flight. the it's, conscious dialogue. We, we, it, and I don't even know that I would say short circuits. It, 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 the, the two are not good bedfellows. Like right. they, they don't cross in the hallway all that often, right. you know, and, and it definitely will supersede the logical brain. Exactly. Absolutely. And what this meditative deal or this mindfulness opportunity provides is a moment for your logical brain to interface with that that emotional part where it's like, I want to eat all the potato chips. It's like, I understand I want to eat all the potato chips, but you know, the reason why is because Consider we're you know we're regulation of appetite right. and here are these knock-on effects, and I recognize that I want those right now, but I'm gonna and this is a thing that I do is I just kick the can. I'm like, I'll have that in five minutes. And then right. five minutes goes by and, and then I'll say, oh, I'll have it in 10 minutes. And then 10 minutes goes by and then I don't want it. And, and we had a discussion about this, like mm-hmm. one of our first conversations, you know, I was like, so how do people in the SEALs, you know, do this stuff? Do you just say I'm never going to quit? And that that's not really been my approach. The, the never wasn't a good deal, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to quit, but it's going to be in an hour. Mm-hmm. And then the hour goes by and I'm like, ah, that wasn't that bad. I'll wait two more hours, you know, and right. that's been my mental coping mechanism, but there, there really is a need for a, a moment to kind of let that emotional part of the brain interface with the logical part of the brain. And it's kind of like the, you know, the handshake, like the old dial up deal where right. the, the thing's chirping right. and <laughs> you've got to provide some time for that to occur. And that is where the logical brain can start having some influence and uh, I guess kind of uh, de-escalate that emotional brain. It's like, shh, go back to sleep. You're okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything's yeah. okay. Yeah, rub it, rub, <laughs> rub back into your brain's belly, cave. and it's like, roll over. You're okay. It's all good. <laughs> <to get away."> yeah, <laughs> that is awesome. All right, you know, we've been chit chatting now for almost 50 minutes. We probably should give our listeners a break. <laughs> I'd love to. Cool. We could go on forever. This is awesome. Um, so. The book, your book is called Wired to Eat. It's due out March 21st. Um, I've seen an advanced copy. I think it's terrific. I know it's going to be a huge win and uh, it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for writing it. I know it's a lot of work to write a book like that because I'm doing it right now myself again. And it is, you know, those days where I'd rather stick needles in my eye than. It's you know, kind of like having kids. Like you do, one, giving you, you have the first one, and you're like, never again. And then six <laughs> months goes by, a year goes by, and you're like, ah, that 
that wasn't that bad. I can probably do and that then, again. Right? And then you get back into it again. You're like, oh, mother of God, what have I done? So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. So good job. Good on you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so it obviously would be available. Where would you prefer people to learn about the book? Do you have any – are you going to do like advanced special deals, you know, yes. that kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. So we have some cool pre-order stuff. If you go to robwolf.com forward slash wired to eat, then we – you can – Order the book there from a variety of locations. Uh, uh, if folks buy it from a brick and mortar setting, they can also take advantage of the book bonuses. But you go to robwolf.com forward slash wired to eat. Then there's an email there where you can take your receipt either from a brick and mortar location or an electronic order. Forward that to us and then you will get a bunch of bonuses. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah. the bonuses include a, an interview that I do with Dr. William Cromwell, who's the head of cardiovascular disease research at LabCorp and Liposcience. And we talk about, you know, like the standard blood work that most people get, what I recommend in the book, kind of compare and contrast that and make a, a case for including a modest amount of advanced testing so that we can really get a, a much better picture of what's going on under the hood. I also have what used to be the first chapter of the book, which is called Lies, Damn Lies, and Statistics. Mm. And it's really a historical account of how our modern medical and food system came into being. Mm. And it, it uh, starts at kind of like late 1940s, early 1950s, and starts walking forward looking at academic, political, and economic interactions that, that have brought us to this kind of crazy situation we have. And then we have a couple other really, really good bonuses. But uh, yeah, if, if folks go to robwolf.com forward slash wired to eat, there's an email there. They can ping us this stuff and we'll get all these, the, the bonus swag. Sure. Okay. So also just so listeners know that for some reason, Rob has an extra B on it. I don't no idea where that came from, but it's Rob R O B B Wolf dot com, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Do you own also R O B Wolf dot com, Justin? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if they flub that, Covered. it should work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good to go. Awesome, Rob. I'm stoked to see you again in person next time you're down these ways, or you know, whenever that happens to be. And uh, thanks again for doing what you do. Awesome, Mark. Keep thank you. You guys have been huge supporters for so long. So thank yeah. you so much. Well, ditto. All right, everyone, that was Rob Wolf. Go check out robwolf.com and uh, and make sure you um, spread the word about Wired to Eat because this is important stuff and it's part of you know, it's part of the integrated solution, you know, nutrition, training, rest and recovery. That's the foundation for optimal health and longevity. And then on top of that, we can build our unbeatable mind. So it's an important part of the equation. Hoo-yah. Thanks for listening. And uh, till next time, train hard, stay focused, and eat to win. We are Coach Divine out. Lock and load, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen. 